You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together. We turn this morning to the book of Exodus for our reading. Exodus chapter 15, the first 18 verses. The Song of Moses. And to get the setting and the context of this song, perhaps you'd look at the last verse of chapter 14 where it says, And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. So this is after the Lord has swept away Pharaoh and all his hosts in the Red Sea. And then follows our scripture reading in chapter 15. Then Moses... And the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congelled in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by, O Lord. Until the people you bought pass by, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. This morning we continue our series on the book of Revelation and we have come to chapter 15. And there the Apostle John writes, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, 
Seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and in heaven the temple that is the tabernacle of the testimony was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Well, of a congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we're all familiar with intermissions. You go to a concert and there is sure to be one. You go to a hockey game and there is one after the first period and the second period and maybe in between the third period and overtime. And the same applies to football games, plays, and other sporting or entertainment events. Why intermissions even happen at weddings. But yet that is not all, for notice that they can also be found here in the book of Revelation. We come across one in Revelation 4 after the seven letters. We meet another in chapter 5 after the seven seals have been opened. We come to one at the end of chapter 11 after the seven trumpets have sounded. Yes, and now here in chapter 15, our text for this morning, we meet yet another intermissions. You can say that intermissions are a regular feature of this last book of the Bible. But why? Why is this so? You may know that in our everyday world, intermissions play a variety of roles and serve different purposes. They allow, for example, in sports, the competing teams to rest for a while. They give the audience a breather, if you will. They enable businesses to serve beer and popcorn. They give the Zamboni a chance to clean the ice. And, of course, none of those reasons apply to the book of Revelation, except perhaps for one. For in this Bible book, you can say that these intermissions allow the saints to catch their breath. 
After all, consider, beloved, the action here is fast and furious. If we're not reading about letters, then it's about seals or about trumpets or about angels or about a dragon or about beasts. And last time, you remember, it was about sickles and harvests and judgments. Indeed, so much is happening in this book. In some ways, Revelation is like a fast-paced movie with so many different scenes, the one following relentlessly after the other. And in some ways, the book of Revelation may even be compared to a pressure cooker. You know, you take it out of your cupboard, you fill it with all the ingredients, you set the temperature, you close the lid, you plug it in, and slowly but surely, the pressure begins to build higher and higher. And indeed, beloved, the pressure is mounting here too. Mounting towards the end. Mounting towards an eruption of the final judgment. Well, now, in the midst of so much fast and furious action, it's good to get a breather. It's good for us. It was good for the saints of old too. And it was especially, we have to keep them in view, good for the first readers of this book. For remember, they were living in terrible, terrible times. Their lives were filled with bloodshed and insecurity and suffering and death. And and then, you know, they receive this letter and, and it too is filled with terror and calamities and death and destruction and judgment. And the question arises, how much can they take? It becomes a breaking point after all to all of us. And so John is led, once again, to call an intermission. He slows everything down. But it doesn't only slow everything down, it also shifts. Because if you look very carefully, there is a shift of scenery in this intermission from the devastations on the earth to the glory and the music of heaven. And you see that more often in these intermissions. And it looks as if everything is suddenly going to overwhelm the people of God. Everything stops. And we get to focus elsewhere. Usually we get to focus on heaven. You see, there are these islands of tranquility in a sea of tumult. Only, not totally. It's true that chapter 15, which we've come to, is all about heaven. Only, look carefully and you can see it's about heaven in two parts. Two movements. The first part, or movement, really does bring much needed comfort and rest and peace. And as for the second part of the second movement, it prepares us for something else entirely. So let's take a closer look at this intermission of chapter 15. I preach to you on the theme intermission time again. Look, a sea of glass and a temple of smoke. And we're first going to look at the saints by the sea. And secondly, at the judgments from the temple. 
You know, in some ways, the book of Revelation is more suited to children than to adults. You might find that a strange statement. You might even be inclined to say that children should be forbidden from reading this dramatic book. It should be X-rated because of all the blood and the trauma in it. It should be declared off-limits to them. But, you know, that would be a shame. And, and why? Well, because often they grasp its meaning faster and better than adults. We tend to try to figure everything out. But, you know, Revelation really is about pictures, a whole series of pictures. And, and children love pictures. And they understand pictures. And they know what to do with them. And so it's also here in in chapter 15 as it opens. Notice the opening words, two words. The Niv translates them as, I saw. If you check other translations, they have, I looked. And both English renderings come from a certain Greek word, idon. And you know, this Greek word is found everywhere throughout this particular last letter in the Bible. Chapter 4, verse 1, after this, I looked. Chapter 5, verse 1, verse 6, verse 11, then I saw or I looked. Chapter 6, verse 1, verse 12, chapter 7, verse 1, 8, verse 2, 8, verse 13, I looked, I looked, and it goes on and on. John is constantly being told, look here, look there, see this, notice that. There are all these pictures flashing before his eyes. The same goes in chapter 15, verse 1. Again, he looks. And what does he see? He sees, it says, another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. The picture this time is one of angels again. Only now it's not about seven angels with seals or trumpets, but as we are told in verse 7, about seven angels with bowls. You know what a bowl is. And what kind of bowls? Well, bowls filled with plagues, it says in verse 1. And in verse 7, it says, bowls filled with the wrath of God. But that's not all. For notice as well, one shocking little word. It's the word last. John refers to the seven last plagues. In other words, we are being reminded of something that we saw last time, namely that that the end is coming near, that the end is approaching. Oh, and that is confirmed, too, by the final words of verse 1. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. You see, beloved, we've come to the last cycle of seven. After seven churches, seven letters, seven seals, seven trumpets, we have the seven bowls. And that's it. There are no more. Time 
is almost up. But before that happens, there is, again, this heavenly intermission or breather. For John looks again in verse 2, and another picture flashes before his eyes. First, you know, he saw seven angels with seven plagues. Second, he says, he saw a sea of glass. Or as some of the older translations have it, a sea of crystal. And then beside this sea, there are all these people. And these people are celebrating. They're singing, they're making music, they're, they're rejoicing. You see, John is allowed a peek, as it were, into the very throne room of heaven. He's allowed to eavesdrop on a heavenly worship service. He's given a rare treat, namely to see what a real, perfect, complete, true, heavenly worship service is like. But then notice... Closer inspection reveals that this heavenly worship service is actually an improvement and fulfillment of an earlier earthly worship service. Long ago, the children of Israel were also living a persecuted life. They were living in Egypt in the land of slavery and in the house of bondage. But then God intervened. He sent Moses and Aaron. He sent plagues as well. Slowly but surely, he brought the mighty Pharaoh to his knees. And the children of Israel were allowed to go. They left Egypt behind. They left loaded down with all kinds of plunder from Egypt. However, it didn't take very long, and Pharaoh had second thoughts. He called his generals together, he marshaled his troops, and off he went to try to recapture and re-enslave the children of Israel. But yet God would not allow it. He miraculously led his people Israel through the Red Sea. He split the sea apart for them. Pharaoh followed And the sea reunited. And together with all of his mighty hosts, he drowned. And Israel gained a mighty victory. A victory that would forever after shape their history and their hope. And what comes after such a victory? My celebration, of course. Music, song. Moses becomes a composer. Miriam becomes an accompanist. Israel becomes a choir. There is praise everywhere. We've read about it in Exodus 15. Well, now what do we read about in Revelation 15? Surely it's this, that Moses' song of victory is still being sung In heaven. It talks about the song of Moses. And the Lamb. Notice it's also been augmented. For to the song of Moses is added the song of the Lamb. And you can read it here. In chapter 15. To an old song is added a new song. 
to the song of one mediator is added the song of another even greater mediator. To the song of earth is added the song of heaven. To the song of the serpent is, of the servant is added the song of the lamb. The lamb who stands in the center of the throne. To the Moses exodus out of bondage, there is added the Jesus exodus out of sin and bondage. Oh, and beloved, how this picture, this picture that enfolds before their eyes must have comforted John and how it must have comforted those suffering saints in the first century. And how it should comfort suffering saints even today. Even us, even God's children around this world. So often it seems as if the saints are standing beside a sea of blood. And then to be reminded time and again of that glorious sea above. A sea of glass or of crystal. But of course that's not all that we have in this picture for a closer look reveals these saints who are standing beside the Sea of Crystal. And notice how they are described. They're said to be victorious. They had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of his name, it says in verse 2. Heaven is filled, in other words, John says, with victorious saints. These people have triumphed thanks to, to the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. While in this life, Jesus Christ declared, I have overcome the world. Well, here are these saints. They confirm it. They confirm that he's greater than Pharaoh, that he's greater than, than Satan and all of the forces of darkness. That he, Jesus Christ, gives us the victory. And notice as well, beloved, something else where these saints are standing. It is, verse 2 says, beside the sea. And that too is noteworthy, for in Revelation we have two different seas. There is the sea out of which comes the beast, the ten horns, seven heads, and ten crowns. Chapter 13. In other words, there is this sea which is turbulent, restless, dangerous, and always threatening. But there's also another sea. And it's vastly different because it's calm and smooth and, and peaceful and, and without a ripple. Smooth as glass, clear as, as crystal. And so what kind of sea is this? This is the sea that's been conquered and calmed by our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you remember what our, our Savior once did when he was in that little boat going across the Sea of Galilee and this mighty storm came along and, and his disciples were in a panic and finally they woke him up and he stands up and he says, See, be still. 
And instantly it obeyed him. And now, beloved, these victorious saints are standing, standing beside this sea. The sea that Jesus has made calm. And that should send a message to them and to us. There are so often storms and tempests in this life. The church is often caught, as it were, in a hurricane. But the message of our text is, fear not. For our Savior can still it. Indeed, He will still it. He will deal with the fury and the tempest, and He will see to it that His followers will go through it and come out of it, unscathed, secure, triumphant. After all, their future is beside a sea of crystal. And something else as well, for to the how and the where, we also need to add the what. What are these saints beside the sea doing? Notice they're singing. And what are they singing? Well, they're singing about God. They're singing about His deeds and His ways. And what are they saying about them? Well, they're saying that his deeds are great and marvelous and that all of his ways are just and true. And furthermore, they're singing about his holiness and about his righteous acts. And they're urging people everywhere to fear him and to bring glory to his name. They're telling them to come voluntarily or if not, they will surely come in chains. All nations will come. They will come and worship before you. There's no doubt about it. You see, beloved, the central thrust of their song and of their praise is that our God is great, just, holy, and true. And that everyone must bow before him. Of course, as we look around in the world today, we see so few people doing this. As a matter of fact, we see so much more of the opposite. People denying, ignoring, minimizing, dismissing, mocking God. Who bows before him? Who glorifies Him? Who praises Him? But yet the book of Revelation says that sad state of affairs is about to end. God will one day receive universal recognition and cosmic submission. The saints will dwell secure. And what a reminder we have here. What an encouragement and what a blessing. But before all of this happens, something else must take place. Judgment will come and must come. And notice to prepare for this, John looks again 
Another picture is, is shown to him, another heavenly picture. Only this time, it's of an entirely different kind of heavenly picture. John writes, after this I looked, and in heaven the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the testimony, was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chest. Well, thus far, it's not all that different at all, is it? But notice there's more to the picture. For John continues, Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. So what's this? Well, this, beloved, is about judgment. And even more specifically, we are told here immediately about the character of this judgment. It's about the wrath of God. And what's the wrath of God? Well, consider the previous chapter, chapter 14, verse 10, where it says, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. And consider as well verse 19 of chapter 14 where it says, The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the winepress of God's wrath. You start to get the picture. The expression, the wrath of God, describes God's absolute anger and utter disgust. And it reminds us that he is not just a little bit upset. Now he's furious at sin. And at all the allies of the beast. So there's this wrath of God which defines the character of his judgment. But notice we're also told something about its intensity. John writes in verse 8, The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. What we have here, in other words, is dense, thick, deadly smoke. Dangerous smoke. You know, sometimes smoke is good. As when it rises from the altar of incense to God, representing the prayers of the saints. But here, the smoke that billows out of the temple is not good. It obscures the whole temple. It's everywhere. It covers everything. It it smothers everything. This is the suffocating smoke of judgment. And something else as well. 
For not only does John talk about the character and the intensity, but also the certainty. There is now, notice, no turning back. Verse 8, no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Quite simply, no one can now get into the temple. Access to God is cut off. No more prayers will reach him. No more pleas will be heard by him. The time for intercession is over. And one last thing. Notice the source of the judgment. Where is all of this coming from? It's coming from the temple. Specifically, John says, it's coming from the tabernacle of the testimony. What does that mean? Well, consider the words of Revelation 21. In Revelation 21, verse 22, John writes, I did not see a temple in the city. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Obviously what this means is that when something is said to come from the temple, it is coming from God and from the Lamb. In other words, the judgment that is spoken of here is divine judgment. Specifically, it is the judgment of the Son of God. You may recall in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 22, our Savior says, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And you know, this is confirmed in Revelation 6.16 where the princes, the generals, the rich and the poor of the earth pray to the mountains and the rocks and they say, fall on us and and hide us from the face of him who, who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So it's the Lamb who brings judgment. He's the one who will crush them to pieces, dash them to pieces like pottery. It's his cup of wrath that's being poured out. And it are his plagues that are coming. Think about that. Isn't that something that should cause us to regard our Savior with fresh and perhaps even with new eyes? The common image of our Lord Jesus Christ is one of tenderness, meekness, infinite patience. But you know, here we're reminded, and elsewhere as well, there's another side to him. There is an awesome side. There is a, there is a fearsome side. There is a, a furious side. And that all of us who believe in Him realize this and acknowledge it. 
But at the same time, let none of us be put off by this. Because we need to understand one very fundamental and basic thing, and it comes everywhere throughout the book of Revelation, and it is this, that those who worship the Lamb need not fear His judgment. And indeed, the fact that the Lamb is the source of judgment is something that should bring patience and peace to us. For sometimes we think that we are the ones who have to straighten out the mess in the universe. That we are the ones who are supposed to right every wrong that exists in the world. But the scripture says not so. One day, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, will come. And he will take care of it. One day he will come and he will right every wrong. He will address every hurt. He will deal with every crime. He will resolve every injustice. And he will put a stop to every suffering. That's what he will do. Not us. The Lamb who saves us is the Lamb who will bring judgment upon the earth. And in the meantime, beloved, our task, your task, my task, is to bear witness and testimony to Him. Is to keep on loving Him, serving Him, honoring Him. Is to keep on announcing that, yes, He is coming. And that we need to live right with Him. And while there is still time, and thankfully there appears to be yet a little time, pray for all whose hearts are hardened, whose wills are stubborn, whose spirits are darkened. May God soften, enlighten, and change them. May they repent of their sins and come to Jesus Christ and so escape the wrath of the Lamb. For it is coming. Revelation chapter 16 is next. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.